Well, let's seek the Lord together. And after I pray, then Andrew will come. Our glorious King, we thank you for the things that we can sing about you. Things that were sung three, four hundred years ago, a thousand, two thousand years ago. We read the words and God, we, our hearts echo them. Every believer here this evening, when we see these realities, we see our own lives and your faithfulness to us painted in those words, a, a reflection of our own experiences. And though we might lack the poetic ability to express it beautifully, God, our hearts know it. You are. And you are the I am who is eternally unchanging. And you have called men and women and children to know you as you really are through the finished work of your son and to delight in you above every other thing. If we have you, God, we have everything. We pray that you would show us the treasures of Christ. We pray that you would teach us this evening, that you would stoop down and you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law, but not just our intellect, God, that the things that are said tonight from your word would unite our hearts to fear you, to stand in awe of who you are, that we would be thrilled to belong to you. And for those who, for whatever reason, have stood at a distance, for those who are your sheep and are walking at a distance, God, use this evening, call our names again, entice us, and draw us, and if you have to come, seek us and put our feet back on a path of obedience. God, we pray for those in our uh, fellowship who are uh, facing continued illness, some illnesses which won't go away. We think of the molars and God, just so many. Greg Elder with the um, cancer. We're so glad to have John and Pat back. God, you know the needs of the human heart in a way that our closest family members and friends do not understand. And we feel the loneliness at times, even if we're surrounded by kind people, until we turn our faces toward you. You made us. You made us for yourself. And we really are restless until we find our rest in you. But for those who face constant physical difficulty, would you be so clearly their unalterable environment to a degree that they uh, would feel that they are the spoiled children of God? Father, we pray that you would work in such a way, wherever you find each of us tonight, work Work in a way that we don't go home the same. Accomplish things. Teach us. Shape us. Recalibrate our thoughts and desires and choices. Do it for the glory of your son. So that his name would be exalted high in our day. And in every day that follows. 
So we ask that you would give us such sweet and free consecration to be glad to hand ourselves over to you again tonight. You are the king. Say whatever you want. We are listening. We ask all of this in the name of our king, Jesus. Amen. Well, I'm uh, excited for this opportunity and maybe a little nervous, but I pray that the Lord will let me forget myself and open his word before you and that we could uh, learn something of his splendor tonight. Um, Our text for tonight will be Psalm 8. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there and I will read it for us. Um, In this psalm, we are really directed to the majesty of God as revealed in creation, as well as revealed in the creation of humanity. And I want us to learn, at least in some part, what this psalm teaches us about ourselves and about our God and how we might apply that to our lives. So Psalm 8, it reads, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So looking through this psalm, I would first like to consider the majesty of God, starting where the psalmist starts with the announcement, O Lord, our Lord. The psalm is addressed to his God. The first Lord there, it should probably be in all caps in your Bible, is the word that God revealed himself as to Moses, the I am, um, the beginning of this great covenantal relationship between God and his people is based on him and who he is. This is the Lord that the psalmist starts his song with, with a cry of praise, O Lord, and then follows that up with a secondary title, Our Lord, that being master or what we might think of as a Lord. Um, someone in authority. But again, that is another picture of a covenantal relationship. So we have both the character of God as he himself is, as well as our Lord, um, this very personal relationship that carries such a weight that we can say our Lord um, at the beginning of this uh, hymn of praise. When we pray to God when we seek him, when we praise him, uh, is it not often that it is hard to grasp the reality of who we're coming to? Um, It's hard to wrap our minds around. I mean, we can't wrap our minds around the magnitude of God, the person that we might shut our eyes and be alone in a room 
and attempt to talk to and attempt to praise rightly. And yet, by faith, we grab hold of the fact that he is who he says he is. He is the I am, and he is our Lord, and we have that relationship with him. So the psalmist begins with that, with, O Lord, our Lord. He continues, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. The name of God, that being all that he has revealed about himself, all that he has shown himself to be in the world, what the world knows him by, it's his name. It is magnificent in all the earth. And we can say with confidence that this is not an exaggeration, that the psalmist says, all the earth. We look, and every corner of the globe is filled with the magnificence of God, with his majestic name. There is not a place on this planet that you can go that does not have the glory of God there. There is not an untouched piece of nature that doesn't sing praises to God. There is not something so minute that it doesn't hold in some part the majestic name of God. We see him everywhere, and we see how the psalmist is brought to praise um, when witnessing the creation of God. Now, this psalmist lives outside of perfection at creation. He lives in a fallen world as we do, and yet he does look around and he sees the majesty of God. It is tempting to read this and to not apply it to our own lives because there is hardship in the world and things aren't right. Um, and we could be like Job and say, all we see is suffering around us. Um, but here the psalmist focuses on something completely different. Uh, even in a fallen world, the creation of God sings his glory. And I think that's pretty pertinent to us. So moving on, the magnificence of God reaches even beyond the bounds of this earth. He writes that he has set his glory above the heavens. God has set his glory beyond the earth, beyond the sky, you could say. And we see that in this passage. He'll, he'll speak of the moon and the stars. Um, we can really see that he sees the glory of God in all of creation on earth, and then he sees the glory of God when he looks into the sky when he looks into the unfathomable space that is full of stars, like diamonds spread out on black velvet. If you've seen a night sky without a bunch of light pollution, you know it would be a better sermon than what I can preach. It would be a picture of the magnificence of God, his majestic name. And so the psalmist here sees the majesty of God on the earth, even outside of the earth, to the fathomless universe. And he sings those praises. And it makes sense, the outburst of praise, O Lord, our Lord, and the worshiping wonder that fills the rest of this psalm. The next thing he goes on to say is, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. So we see here, even in the grandeur of God's majesty, it's not only revealed in the greatest things you can think of. He uses the weak. He stills and silences his enemies by the mouths of infants. Um, it doesn't always have to be fathomless space or a world that is wonderful and incomprehensible. He proves and establishes his strength 
through the weakest of beings. And in all of this, we see a threefold picture. The glory of God on earth, the glory of God in the heavens, and the glory of God even in the weakest things. And in those praises, the enemies of the Lord are silenced. The psalmist goes on, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? The psalmist looking at the night sky, he reels from the awesome sight. Rightly, he calls those wonders that he sees the works of God's fingers. It's not even day and night and year of labor that God has to go through to spread the stars across the sky. He ordains their spots. He makes it all, and the psalmist likens it to the work of his fingers. Just like a master craftsman, he ordains these celestial bodies. And it's very magnificent, the use of something so small, um, a phrase that makes it seem so... Um, so small, the work of his fingers, and yet he's talking about the stars and the moon and this thing that prompts him to praise God so. And this leads to a very natural response of the question of how does God then look to us? How does God, how is God mindful of us? How is God even caring for us? Uh, the word here, what is man, that you are mindful of him, it is a picture of mankind. It is everyone. It's the big picture. Um, it's not just the individual, but is what is all of mankind that God would take notice of us, that God would be mindful. And then the next line, and the son of man that you care for him, um, brings it down to the individual, the single son of man that God would truly care for a single individual. And so this first few verses really grounds the psalmist in a realization of God's supremacy, of how incredible it is that we can witness just glimpses of his majesty. We witness the glory of God again on earth and in heaven and even in the most helpless creature. And the glory of God completely surrounds us in his creation and his rule over it all. Moving on from there, from the picture of the majesty of God, I'd like to draw your attention to the unlikely exaltation of man. After witnessing the glorious creation of God, which sings his praises, sings his majesty, the question again naturally comes, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? When we witness the wonder of God, the majesty of his name, his omnipotence, filling the vast space with thousands of stars, um, an unreachable universe that we can't understand, and yet it's with simply his fingers. It is awe-inspiring when we think of the omnipresence of God and that he's not bound by space. He's not refined to a certain location, but he extends across that entirety of space and that he upholds this finite world with his infinite arm it's very understandable to say, how is, does God look to people like us, and why would God think about us, let alone care for us? Psalm 144, in verses 3 and 4, 
um, has very similar wording when the psalmist asks, O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Think of this in contrast with the descriptions of God in Psalm 8. His majesty flows through all the earth, and the earth cannot hold it. It goes beyond to the heavens and above the heavens. His glorious character is so wonderful that yet through the mouths of babes and infants, he establishes his strength and puts an end to those who hate him. And then there is us, a breath and a shadow on his creation. And it's quite a humbling picture, is it not? Consider this, considering this, the following verse is even more surprising. It reads, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. The verse opens with that word, yet. Um, and it's as if it's saying, despite this great discrepancy between the absoluteness of God and the nature of weak and tiny humans, we still see God blessing mankind. Not, not only is God mindful of mankind, caring for us, but even in our insignificance, he places us a little lower than the heavenly beings, <clears throat> crowned with glory and honor. Um, this word for heavenly beings, your Bible might say a little lower than God. Um, heavenly beings seems to be a better translation. In the New Testament, when it's quoting back to this, and in the Septuagint, it's translated angels. And if it was referring to God, it would most likely just say yourself, because it is addressing God in these passages. But regardless, whether it is saying a little lower than God or a little lower than the angels, it gives this picture of mankind being elevated to a place that it does not seem like he should be, a place that is undeserved, a place of honor, a crown with honor and glory. So this honor and glory is royal language. Humanity is not left in its frailty and weakness that we can perceive ourselves as, especially in the light of God's beautiful creation, but we're given prestige and exaltation from the Lord. Though we are dust, God exalts man as the crown of his creation. The psalm goes on to explain this crowning more. He says, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. After describing God's creation in all of his glory, the psalmist writes, just directly afterwards, that God places the works of his very hands under the dominion of mankind. The wording of this section points us back to Genesis 1 and the account of God making man as the climax of his creation. And so I would like to look at Genesis 1, verses 26 through 31, and I will read through those, but if you'd like to turn there, we'll be looking at that passage for a little bit of time. So Genesis 1, verse 26, to the end of the chapter. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. and the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So we see here in this passage that humanity is not simply another piece of creation, um, but we really are crowned with honor, like Psalm 8 says. Humanity is uniquely created in the image of God. It's the very first thing in the creation account of man. And God said, um, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. An astounding statement for the God of all creation to say when he goes to make us, when he goes to make mankind. We're made in the image of God, in the likeness of God, made to reflect his glory and to share in his exaltation. And the second description of man goes hand in hand with the first. God says, let them have dominion. And it goes on, let them have dominion over the birds and the beasts and the fish. Um, the same list that is in Psalm 8. <clears throat> in being made in the image of God, we are made with the unique attribute of authority granted from God. And our psalmist praises God in all of this unexpected blessing, this unexpected authority given to man. And at, to end the first chapter of Genesis, we read about God looking out on all that he has created, and he sees everything that he has made, and it says, behold, it was very good. So God judges his creation, and it proves worthy of him. He says it is very good. And what a beautiful thing it is that God can make man in his image, a reflection of him, and God can give man authority over his creation, over the works of his hands, like the psalm says, and it is a very good thing. But this blessing is quickly tainted, and we see in Adam's fall that much of the image of God is dimmed, it is lost, and we no longer display his glory willingly and naturally like we should, but we fight against him. In pride, we seek to rule ourselves, and we have lost the attributes of God that were present in humanity before the fall. His holiness, his righteousness, and a knowledge of him that humanity naturally had that were present instead now by the fall, apart from the grace, we have none of, apart from grace, we have none of those things. We cannot know him, and we cannot be holy, and we cannot be righteous as we should. The authority and the position of honor that God placed humanity in is also tainted and also dimmed. And while we still see that we have in some way authority over animals, over creation, it is not the way that the authority was intended to be. It is not a beautiful stewardship of God's creation that brings honor to him. And instead, we have failed at the God-giving role of stewardship, and in our sin, 
by nature. We take what we can from the earth and we cherish it. And in that sense, don't we place ourselves underneath it, underneath worldly things and the control of worldly things as we love them in our bent nature. But Psalm 8 doesn't point us to despair. It doesn't mention these things but it points us to joy and delight and praising in the Lord and praising in the creation of man. And the reason for this can be found in Hebrews 2, which it brings us to our third point, and that is the redemption and fulfillment of, in Jesus Christ of humanity. So let's turn to Hebrews 2 and look at our Savior and the reason that a psalm can be so hopeful when looking at humanity that is so fallen. So Hebrews 2, starting in verse 5, I'll read down through the end of the chapter. We'll mainly be looking at 5 through 9. The author of Hebrews writes, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, it has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God, and, and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil." and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For he uh, for because he himself has suffered, when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So we see in Hebrews, which so often looks at Christ as the supreme and the sufficient Savior, we see Christ here as the Savior of fallen humanity, of the nature of humanity. Here in Hebrews, we see that the love and the kindness of God in redemption of what was lost, we see it in the redemption of what was lost. What was taken away in the fall of Adam, Adam being a representative, is being restored in Jesus Christ as the second Adam. Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 8. Everything is in subjection under his feet. It is Christ that is crowned in honor perfectly, uncorrupted by sin, 
perfectly reflecting the image of God in his humility. As the author of Hebrews says, God left nothing outside of his control. And while at present we don't see everything bowing the knee to Christ as it will, we do see him and we see the beginning of what will be that great victory. Jesus suffering and being made lowly. Because he suffered death, he has been crowned with glory and honor, a man on the throne. We read that Jesus suffered and died so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Christ died for the sinner, for the human who is not fulfilling their role that they were made for, the rebel, the one that doesn't live for God and for his glory. So that in being joined to Christ, to Jesus as the perfect man, we might be saved from death, we might be saved from the power of sin and the power of, like Hebrews 2 said, lifelong slavery in fear of death. Hebrews 2, 10 through 18, we see that Christ is made like us for our sakes, that he is flesh and blood as we are, that he suffers as we have, and that for because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We don't just have Christ as the fulfillment of perfect humanity. We have Christ as a kind savior and a kind high priest that understands our weakness. It is an amazing picture of the restoration of the image of God in us. We have lost that holiness. We have lost being able to know God. And yet Christ being the fulfillment, being the redemption, the purchasing back of fallen man, of what we were meant to be, we see him leading us to God, teaching us about God, saving us that we might know God. So in Psalm 8, we don't just see the love and the kindness of God in his creation and in the splendor of that creation, but we see it even more in Christ Jesus, who redeems and fulfills by his suffering the crown of humanity, our place as the most glorious piece of creation, the last thing that God created, the epitome of that creation. And in that way, we are supposed to offer up the epitome of worship to God. And only through Christ and in Christ is that happening and is that possible. And so we praise God for the redemption of our nature. Man has fallen and dishonors God, and only through Christ and his perfect manhood is humanity able to honor God again. And so the last verse of the psalm that we've been looking at, Psalm 8, says again, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And the final words of the psalm point us back to the whole purpose of the song, to sing the praises of our Lord's majesty. And how much more can we, who have found our hope in the salvation of Jesus Christ, who is exalted in glory and honor, those royal terms, sing, how, how much more could we sing about the majesty of God? Even in mankind's rebellion against God, he will receive the glory of perfect creation through the work of of Jesus Christ. And so in this psalm, we really are meant to see the glory of God and what man is meant to be and how that is only accomplished through our Savior. And so there's no way to look at the psalm and then to look at ourselves and to be boastful and proud of the honor of humanity 
but instead we look and we give thanks to God for his glorious creation and his glorious salvation. Some points of application that I think are very helpful to draw um, from these passages is firstly that we can realize our place as humans um, in light of God's creation. Like the psalmist, do we marvel at the wonders of God's mighty works? Do we praise his name and see his handiwork? Does a sight of his majesty humble us before him and make it even more amazing that God would consider us, that God would care for us and call us to be worshipers and servants of himself? It is magnificent. It is a beautiful thing. So let us be like the psalmist and bring to mind our place as God's creation. Dwell on God as our Lord, as our creator, and what he intended his creation to be, which is worshiping him, and let his splendor quench rising pride that we so often feel. I feel we often, we lose the forest for the trees, and we live in the world that God created, and yet somehow we neglect to see his majesty in it. And instead, we get very trapped in what we can see and what we can do, and we lose sight of him. And in that, we become very proud because, I mean, we're the greatest things we see around, right? But no, like this psalmist, let the world that we live in point us to God. Let the world that we live in that he made and that serves him, let it humble our hearts. For the believer, we should be brought to humility and to worship by this chapter, not only by the grandeur of God in the world around us, and not only by his kindness in creating us, but in adoration of Jesus, our Redeemer, and our hope. Through him, we can honor the Lord as his stewards. Through Christ Jesus, God receives the glory that is due his name. Cling to Jesus Christ and be like the infants that are mentioned in the psalm, um, a weak being that is silencing the enemies of God and showing his strength, establishing his strength on this world. Let us be a part of his creation that announces the majesty of his name. With the rest of the world, let us magnify him. Let's bring to mind regularly the Lord's splendor as creator and hope and joy, and the hope and joy that we have in Jesus Christ as the redemption of our humanity, of that original purpose to rule for the sake of God. But for the unbeliever, from birth, you have neglected to serve God as you were intended to, as you were created to. Every one of us is born into sin, and instead of serving God, from our earliest instincts, we live for ourselves. If we are going to be what God created us to be, It is not going to be by our own efforts, but it is only going to be by the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ. The blood that cures the soul that is sick with sin, the soul that only loves yourself. Christ tasted death so that those who trust in him no longer have to live in that death. Christ is crowned so that we too can bring glory to God, the glory that he deserves. So for the believer who wants to glorify God and magnify him, let your thoughts thoughts constantly be of Jesus Christ, 
We are being redeemed so that we can bring glory to God, joyful worship to him, and it's not done through our strength, but by the crowning of Christ in glory and honor. For the unbeliever who wants to stop living for emptiness, stop submitting themselves to the dust of this world that does not last, look to Jesus Christ as your Savior. Look to Christ as the Redeemer that he is, and your soul needs a Redeemer. That is the one thing your soul needs. You must be given the gift of being able to serve God. It is only by his redeeming blood that you even can live for him, that you even can fulfill the purpose that we were all created for. The question is asked, why are we here all the time throughout history? What is the purpose of humanity? And here it is. It is to serve God, and you cannot do that without the redeeming blood of Christ. So we are all humans, and we're all part of mankind that's described here. And so we all look to the same Savior, the same hope and the same loving gift of God, Jesus Christ, who sits on the throne. He has done what we can't do, and he has done it on behalf of those who cast themselves on him in faith. And then we can say, O Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name in all the earth. And in the reign of Jesus Christ. God saw creation after he finished on the sixth day, and he said that it was very good. But will it not be much more magnificent when God looks at his creation again, when it has been redeemed, and he can say once again that it is very good, and that through the work of Christ, there is no longer the taint of sin, and we no longer are dishonoring to him, but perfectly magnifying him along with creation. And that will be a wonderful day. And if you don't understand why that is so wonderful, look to Christ, look to him as the redeemer. You need to feel your own emptiness, feel your, the distance that you are from what you are meant to be as a fallen human and look to Christ as the one that fulfills Psalm 8, the one that is crowned and the one that is perfect. And look to his sacrifice for you and that he sympathizes with us as flesh and blood. And he is a real man who has accomplished what we never could. So praise the Lord and praise the beautiful gift that he's given us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are humbled before um, your word. We are indebted to your goodness, Lord. How can we lift up praises to a God that deserves all praise? Um, had we a thousand hearts to give, Lord, it would still not be enough. Our Lord, we ask that you would help us whether we have cast ourselves on Christ before or whether we never have tasted the sweet relief of salvation, God, we ask that you would turn our hearts to him tonight, that you would focus our minds and our souls, Lord, on Jesus as Savior, that we would not be 
ensnared by the things of the world that so easily grab our attention, but Lord, that we would be in awe of you and in the majesty that is proclaimed in creation, God. We ask that we would not be able to escape a sight of your glory because even as mankind, Lord, we are made in your image. Our God, we ask that our praises would be honoring to you and that you would help us, Lord, to apply this, apply your word to our lives, God, that we would be honoring to you. We thank you for Christ and we ask, Lord, for better views of him, greater views of him, Lord, and the gift to serve you wholeheartedly. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.